Hello and welcome back to The Anecdotalist, Episode 7. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and with me as always, my co-host, Jason McKinney. Man, I am thoroughly enjoying being back and listening to a ghost story. I, you know, don't, don't tell your wife, but I actually do enjoy the ghost stories. Yeah, the ghost stories are interesting, and um, it's it's so funny because as I was wor- like working through this outline and kind of compiling everything, it's so much different than an unsolved mystery or like a, a UFO encounter. I, what I found with these episodes is that it almost feels like we're this story, then this story, then this, this story. It's kind of hard to like holistically put it into an episode. So tonight, what we're really hoping to do, or what I'm really hoping to do, is put together something that's a little bit more not as not as dry as like the unsolved mystery or a ufo episode where we're just like this is the information here's all the stuff and because we kind of get a little bit long-winded i think when we do those other episodes these ghost episodes i think for me i want them to be a lot more laid back so we can just work through them and kind of have some fun and that's what my goal is for tonight um when we work through the the ghosts of the myrtle plantation so um, we typically record these at night, so I'm really hoping to scare Jason a little bit, if that's if that's possible. Dude, you know, at first I was like, no, this isn't. You're not going to scare me. I'm not like that big of a of a coward. <laughs> but uh, have you ever watched the show Resident Alien? No, I haven't. It's a comedy, and I actually had there was a jump scare, and I just about jumped out of my pants. So I can't say. So you're saying you watched that before this in preparation to be scared. It's not even a scary show. That's that's the bad part. <laughs> I like I said there was a jump scare and it wasn't even like a real scare. It was it was not supposed to be scary, but I, you know, I just thought jumped out of my pants on it. Yeah. So are you like me right now with the lights off and you're I, I'm in my office with my lights off and all I have is my like 30 inch monitor and my laptop sitting right here and that's all it's lighting up the room. I can't see anything. So it does get a little freaky for me in here because it's me, the screen, and the darkness all around. So <laughs> I, I'm i already feeling a little antsy and scared. No, bro. Every light is on in here, and I'm actually, I'm not going to lie, I'm <laughs> I'm slightly scared that my wife's going to like come in here, creak the door open, and try to get me while I'm facing away from the door. Yeah. She's going to pop in and scare you. I've got like one ear out, like waiting for her. That's good. So tonight we're talking about the ghosts of the Myrtle Plantation. I've also realized that when it comes to this topic, you know, again, the material is kind of tough because it's just like story after story and firsthand experiences. Um, So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to actually run through kind of a history like we always do. I'll run through some of the the legends, and then we're actually going to talk about a few different topics, a few different ghosts, and just some firsthand experiences. One of the books I read for this was the History and Haunting of the Myrtle Plantation by Rebecca F. Pittman, as well as The Myrtle's Plantation, The True Story of America's Most Haunted House by Francis Kermine. And I, what I want to say is that last book, we didn't re- I didn't really pull a whole lot from it just because it is a fiction. Um, and so as I was reading it, it's more just to kind of give me, I think, a little bit more perspective. There's other sources here that I pulled from, and those will be in the, sh- the show notes. But the, the main book, The History and Haunting of the Myrtle Plantation, which is a really thorough book there's a lot there uh i cross-referenced it with other articles and pulled some other things but um, reading that book was really enlightening so if you are interested in this in this podcast if you finish this episode and think wow that was interesting i would pick that book up because we're we're basically just scratching the surface with what we're talking about tonight 
uh, that book really gets down and dirty with with a lot of the information from the Myrtle Plantation. Yeah, all I can say is that I'm really glad that you're the one reading these. And I, I do want to say, like, it's, it, you know, like Paul said, this is kind of nice because, you know, we're doing a ghost one, so it's not nearly as fact-driven. Um, me and Paul have both been sick. Paul's whole family got sick, and me and my wife both got sick, like, last week. So this is kind of a nice break for us to be able to get into a ghost story that's more of a, you know, just a story rather than fact after fact. So this is this is kind of a nice break for, I think, both of us. It is. It is. And it's funny because it's as much of a break as it is, there's still, I still had to do quite a bit of research to put down all the historical stuff first. <laughs> that was kind of like, I was like, oh man, there is actually quite a bit of like stuff going on here that we have to like get through because in order to tell a good ghost story, you have to talk about the history and where some of the people came from. And so we're going to do that first here. I, I know this intro has gotten longer and longer and longer here. So we should go ahead and jump in. Um, and so th- all that said, Jason, are you ready? Yes, sir. Okay, here we go. You awake to footsteps bounding up the stairs. It's late. No one should be stomping around. As you look out of your room, you see nothing. Down the stairs, you hear children playing. And as you approach, at the bottom of the stairs, you see in the reflection of the mirror a little boy playing with his sister. When they notice you, they run off out of sight. No kids are in the house this night, but... Smeared on the mirror is a little handprint to remind you someone was down there. Before you return to your room, the piano starts playing. It's late. There shouldn't be anyone playing the baby grand in the foyer. When you look, it stops. Maybe you're still asleep. Shaking it off, you go back to your room and close the door. When you hear a loud bang outside. Looking out of the window, you see a young woman dressed in 19th century clothing with a green turban on her head, walking across the yard. In a moment, she stops and looks up at your window. You immediately realize you shouldn't be there. So, bro, I want to say no one sees ghosts kids and says, hmm, I'm going back to bed. (laughs) Okay, so here's a phenomenon. This is actually a phenomenon that people see ghosts and for whatever reason, go back to bed. It's a phenomenon that comes up again and again and again with ghost stories. And it's so funny because I actually had this happen to me. I... I wanted to do an episode on like personal experiences because I have several that I would love to talk about and I'd love to bring my mom in because she has some really freaky ones. Yeah, I remember them. So this one specifically back when we lived at the townhouse um, before we bought our first house, my wife, the first year we lived together, I remember laying in bed. I used to get a lot of sleep paralysis and I remember rolling over and perceptually I saw something standing there. I don't know if it was part of my dreaming or like it was like a hallucination or me just like in a sleep paralysis state, but someone was standing there. 
and I just rolled over and went back to sleep. And I wasn't scared, nothing. I just like, I remember vividly all that happening. And in hindsight, I'm like, man, if someone was actually standing there, like, and I just didn't react, how freaky. But there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of ghost stories where people see a ghost and they do the opposite of what your brain should tell you to do. They just roll back over and go to sleep. Okay, so you know, you know what's funny is I'm sitting here and we're doing this recording, and as we're doing this recording, um, you know, me and Paul were just chatting, and I kid you not, I'm like sitting here and I hear something like so my my bathroom is right next to my kitchen, and I heard something knock over in what I thought was the kitchen, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, mom or my wife or my grandmother are out there knocking something over and abby comes in and she's like did you hear that what what was that and i'm like i thought it was you and we go in the bathroom and the shower curtain is on the ground as we're sitting here talking about this and i'm like no one's gonna believe me if i tell like this story like no one's gonna believe oh yeah like you're telling a ghost story obviously you're gonna come up with something ghost like but like as we're sitting here talking about this like we're you know sitting here talking and this happens like what the heck? Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is like my, my mom um, and my wife now says the same thing, but they always said, don't, don't invite that. When you talk about it, you invite those things in. And I, I feel like there's two pieces of that. Either a, you're just more aware and things that happen that are unexplainable. You attribute to ghosts. If you're talking a lot about ghosts and things or B since we are actively engaging in like paranormal conversations, Maybe we are inviting stuff in, which is really freaky. My mom used to always say, don't invite that stuff in, Paul. And my wife, even with like these episodes we're doing, she does not like that we're doing ghost episodes. But the UFO stuff, the Unsolved Mystery stuff, yeah, that's fine. But these ghost episodes, she's like not a huge fan that, we, that we're doing this. I'm not either. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I get scared a little bit too. I love being scared though. I love a good scare. But when, when we do these episodes... I, it is fun though, and I, and I try to make sure. I think what we're going to be doing, and if anybody out there listening right now is listening to this ghost story, I, I don't first foresee anything from Jason or I that it's like really aggressive or demonic, like super. I think a lot of our ghost episodes are going to be a lot more lighthearted, um, and that's probably most of the reason. Because for me, I, I don't really want to dabble in anything too too dark. Talking about like mild ghost stories is. Is, is going to be hopefully fun. I like a little, I like a little scare. Um, but if you're listening to this and this is, is, and you're really into ghost stories and you want something really heavy and dark, this probably isn't the show for you because we're not going to get, we're not getting there. <laughs> I don't plan on getting super deep. Yeah. If it gets, if it gets super dark, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go watch a Disney movie. Yeah. I'm scared right now sitting in my office in my dark office. Again, the goal t- for tonight is to have fun. Um, and have it a, a really just good discussion around uh, the Myrtle Plantation. I, I know that, for example, you know, these episodes we've been doing up until this point have been very like information driven. This is going to be there's going to be some history and information at the beginning here, but we're going to really dive deep into uh, the Myrtle Plantation. And so one thing I want to say, just as a preface, this first section does detail some not so great topics from the early part of the U.S. history. This is a southern plantation, and as such, this plantation, they, they had slaves. And we, of course, understand this can be a sensitive topic. So we'll talk through that with as much grace as, as we can. 
So we're going to start by talking about the history of the plantation, the main families who lived here, uh, and then finally the ghosts. And then, of course, as always, when we wrap up, we'll talk about what we feel about this plantation. So Louisiana has a rich history of voodoo and dark magic. I know we typically think of New Orleans when we think of dark magic and maybe a little bit of Cajun food, but the Myrtle Plantation is actually about two hours away from New Orleans and about 30 minutes north of the capital, uh, Baton Rouge. So just as a reminder, this area at the time, think like mid to late 1700s, it was owned by the French, the Spanish, and the Americans. So I'm not going to get super in the weeds here on what the, you know what the state of Louisiana is. And of course, in 1803, there was a Louisiana Purchase, which now encompasses parts of something like 15 states. But it is important to note that this area was in multiple hands, the French, the Spanish, and the Americans. And those cultures heavily influenced even like what we what we see in, in Louisiana today. So the first family that was here was the Bradfords, uh, led by David Bradford. He's actually the one who goes on to build the plantation. So in the 1780s, he becomes somewhat of a successful lawyer practicing law in Pennsylvania. And after some time passes due to the Americas being controlled by several different countries, there was a fairly large discrepancy in how goods were transported and taxed, specifically whiskey, which I have a glass of in my hand right now. Uh, the main problem, for example, was whiskey shipped as a good to Spanish-ruled New Orleans. So taxing the source of the product, basically the country in which it was made, solved some of those problems, but then you also had tariffs, and that taxation varied greatly. This, of course, upset people, and the Whiskey Rebellion kicked off in 1794. And I bring all this up because the leader of that rebellion was none other than David Bradford. So George Washington mobilizes troops, and there's a bit of a scuttle. And I'm not about to get into like the economics of the 18th century continental U.S., but I want to point out that there's already a little bit of a legend surrounding Bradford, and so he's basically persuaded to leave so it kind of makes me wonder if there's not a whiskey named something bradford there's got to be a whiskey called something bradford Sorry, i don't know that i wasn't talking to you alexa <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be a whiskey named something bradford I, I bet you anything man i'm like racking my brain real hard how about you google that right now for me yeah i'll do that so him and his family they purchased 650 acres in saint francisville which at the time was Spanish-controlled West Florida. He actually ends up getting pardoned in 1799 before he builds his little 1,000-square-foot home to serve as a temporary residence while the main plantation is built. By 1797, they're living at the new plantation home, and there are six kids at this point. They have something like 24 slaves, I think kind of at the peak. I don't think it's super necessary to get into like the day-to-day -day of the plantation life, but all in all, Bradford passes and Elizabeth is tasked with running the day-to-day. So some time passes, and their daughter is married to a man named Clark Woodruff. So that's Bradford. It's Bradford's story. So I did look it up. There's actually no uh, Bradford whiskey. There's like a Halen Bradford out in Colorado, but there's no um, whiskey named after this Bradford, which is very interesting. That's our next venture, Jason. I'm, I'm going to make a whiskey and name it Bradford. I was about to say. So they purchased Laurel Grove from Elizabeth. And they plant indigo and cotton over something like 650 acres. Now, the Woodruffs had several kids. And this will be important here shortly because the first big, like, tale legend is about this family. So I do want to take a second and stop. Uh, so Bradford, I, just to take a step back, that was really quick. But really, Bradford, he, he led the Whiskey Rebellion. 
he basically um, had to flee the U.S., which was the small little continental U.S., and he went down to Spanish-controlled West Florida. Just as a recap here, he did get pardoned, but he did flee down. That's why he's in Louisiana. That's why they built his plantation, was because he basically fled Pennsylvania because he was basically an enemy of the state. So there's multiple accounts of this story, but the first ghost is probably considered to be the most prominent ghost of the Myrtle's plantation. The legend basically goes, Chloe, a slave, oftentimes would eavesdrop on Mr. Woodruff's conversation. She would listen in to get information on possible buying and selling of slaves, and then pass that information on to the others in the house. And I don't think there was anything really nefarious about her listening in. It was more of like, she was trying to just get information, um, so she was more aware of what was happening in the house. Not even just like what was happening with the slaves, but in general, just to be more aware or cognizant of what was happening in the house. I mean, that makes sense. It's like the you know the main man of the house. I would want to know, you know, how finances are and stuff. And I'm sure all the other slaves wanted her to probably eavesdrop as well. Yeah, I'm sure there was part of that. Is like is there? They probably liked getting the information. But she was caught a few times um, with her ear to the door, so to speak. And she was reprimanded in some way, but nothing ever really crazy. So finally, one time she is listening in. The door is cracked open a little bit. And it's said that Mr. Woodruff swung the door open and in a fit of rage had her earlobe cut off as a symbol of eavesdropping. So, so Chloe, she was said to wear this green turban to cover her hair and head. And the legend goes she wore this with the intention of covering her disfigured ear. But apparently, slave woman wearing turbans was a common clothing style in this era, I guess. So it was it was intended to like hide their beauty, hide their hair, so that they didn't compete with the other women. And so like I guess it was pretty common for slaves to wear like some type of headscarf. There's speculation that she wore hers specifically to cover her disfigured ear. Oh, interesting. So in order to get back into the good graces of the Woodruffs. Chloe positioned herself to be in charge of making the birthday cake of the twins for their ninth birthday. She hatched a plan to add leaves of the oleander plant, a poisonous plant. The idea was that they'd get a little sick and she could help nurse them back to health. And so there's another variation of this where basically she was just trying to kill him, um, kind of like revenge for cutting her ear off. But most of the story stories and legends talk about she had this not nefarious plan. It was more like make them sick, I'll help them get better, and they'll bring me back into their good graces. So anyway, she she definitely put too much um, in there. And the twins, along with Mrs. Woodruff, got like extremely sick. So the legend part of this said they died from the cake. However, records don't indicate that, um, as they all lived past this period, and they died of yellow fever later on. They all did get really, really sick, and she kind of freaked out basically started telling all the other slaves what she had done. So the slaves, along with some other workers, took her off, dragged her off, and they hung her in a field um, and then tossed her body into the Mississippi, basically because they didn't want to be affiliated with someone that was killing or poisoning the main household. The main household, yeah. So they ended up killing her and tossing her into the Mississippi. Yeah, I definitely think that this, like, it's, I think it's obvious that she was just trying to make them sick and then nurse them back to health. Because if you're trying to, if you're trying to kill the main family members, like, you would go for the, you know, the man of the house, you know, you wouldn't go for the kids. I mean, especially this, you know, this woman, I mean, she's not, girls don't go for the kids, you know, like, 
Yeah, that that's really interesting. The the whole kid thing. Either a, it is a different time period, and maybe like, what's the best way to get at somebody other than to kill their kids? But b, I I think you're right in that. I don't think the there was an intention to like actually kill the kids. I think it was more like, hey, I'll, I'll make them feel sick. Oh, I know they're not going to die because I know what what's happened to them. But it, apparently, it went. It just went a little too far. Man, that sucks. So Chloe is our first ghost, and she is a prominent ghost on this plantation. So visitors often feel her tugging at their earlobes while walking the grounds. One crazy sighting of Chloe comes from a a photo. And you can go online right now and look at this picture. Basically, if you look up Myrtle's plantation, it's like the first thing that pops up, and it's pretty creepy. So this photo was taken for insurance purposes. And once it was developed, you can see standing up against the outside wall, there's a figure of a young woman appearing to be wearing a headdress similar to the turban Chloe would have been wearing. And it's, it's, it's pretty freaky because that, inf- that, that picture wasn't like intended to be like, Oh, we're making like a ghost thing here. It was for insurance purposes. They got it developed, looked at it later. And there's a, a figure of a woman dressed in 19th century clothing with a headdress standing off to the side, which assume presumably is Chloe's ghost. Yeah, and you can, like, so looking at this photo, like, you can tell that this is, I mean, this is from a, it looks like from an era where, you know, insurance fraud or, you know, a a way to try to make money out of it, you know, there's a ghost here. I don't think they would set this up to have a fake ghost just to make more money off people visiting this house. Um, Just because of that time, I don't think anybody was thinking that at that time. Um, but it is kind of funny because if you if you're looking at this picture, um, <laughs> the the ghost is actually standing like right outside the door, and it just kind of makes me think, oh, she's she's eavesdropping again. <laughs> yeah, she's listening in. Yeah, maybe that's why she was standing there. It is really it is really freaky, and the whole thing about insurance, you know, there is a lot. I I read the book. I'm not sure if you read this, The Devil in the White City. Um, it's about the Chicago World Fair, and it, it overlays. Um, I think his name is H.H. Holmes, I want to say. And he was like one of the first American serial killers. And so he was doing a lot of insurance fraud stuff. And that was a a super common thing. That was, I think, the late 1800s when when he was doing all that, when the World's Fair was in Chicago. But specifically ghosts for insurance purposes, I don't I don't (laughs) I don't know of any stories where that was that was part of it. So I think if anything, that's the last thing you want to do is be like, yeah, we're ha- my house is haunted. And I, you know what I mean? I think it was just a weird situation where they took these photos and they got them developed. And they're like, who is this person standing here? And later found out, hey, I think this was actually Chloe, the the slave that was that was hung on the grounds. Yeah, especially so back in this time period, there it was much more scary. Like when you talk about ghosts and demons like this was a it was a huge deal you wanted to stay away from that you know whereas now nowadays it's like oh this is entertainment you know back then it was like no go go the opposite direction don't don't investigate the ghost the could be ghost so obviously this photo would probably be more damaging to anybody who wanted to sell the house yeah the 1800s was really weird when it comes to ghosts and like uh paranormal stuff they really dabbled in it and they like a lot of people really thoroughly believe that stuff i know now today when we talk about a lot of it it's kind of like tongue-in-cheek or we don't really feel like we believe it but i don't know 
I believe a lot of it because it freaks me out. <laughs> but I, you know, I think people were more warm to that stuff back then. So seeing or there, there being a perception of ghosts being at the house, I don't think there was any other intention. There was no reason at that time for them with this picture for there to actually be a ghost for it to be faked. It just came up. So not too long after this, the Woodruffs, all of them, or at least the majority of them, just start dropping like flies. So just like one after another, mostly from yellow fever, but not really exclusively. Sarah Bradford Woodruff goes first at like 26 years old, then 12-year-old James, and a whole slew of Bradfords and Woodruffs. Basically, by 1830, Clark Woodruff and his only surviving child, Mary Octavia, they leave the plantation and they sell it to the Sterling family. A quick little tidbit here, mentioned in the book by Rebecca Pittman, The History and Haunting of the Myrtles Plantation. So according to Pittman, the cemetery where Clark Woodruff is buried, so it falls under disrepair, and the city of New Orleans decided to move the cemetery, but bodies that were unclaimed, including that of Woodruff, ended up in a mass grave under Hope Mausoleum. So if you so please, you can now go watch the Saints play at New Orleans Superdome, or now called Caesar Superdome, it basically sits where that old cemetery used to lay. So where Woodruff was buried, the city of New Orleans moved all those bodies, and then they built <laughs> the New Orleans Superdome right on top of where that cemetery used to be. Yeah, there's so many um, scary movies and haunted things that happen from things like this. Disturbing of the graves. I mean, the, the one movie that I am picturing more than anything is... Um, there's a movie that I watched back in the day where they, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a, an Indian grave where they moved all these bodies and just pretty much disturbed all the spirits. And so like the whole, you know, the whole state is just like terrorized by these Indian ghosts. Yeah. Indian burial grounds, like native American ghosts. That's a whole nother thing we could get into. And there's actually, you know, it's funny you say that because there is actually a th- like a theory or a legend that says that this was, before the plantation was was built was some type of Indian burial ground. But I only read that like one place and I don't know if that holds any water. I think any ghost story, somebody like like Stephen King, Stephen King's always right. <laughs> any ghost story he has, it starts with the Indian burial ground. Yeah, that's a that's a common trope that I'm sure we'll have down the road we'll have a, a ghost episode with with Indian burial grounds probably some at some point. Maybe we'll eventually have one from Caesar's Superdome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get maybe we can get Drew Brees. I need to get Drew Brees on as a guest to talk about his ghost experiences uh as the as a New Orleans Saint. So he's like, Yeah, man. He's like, you know, every time that I go to get my jersey out of my locker, it's in a different locker. <laughs> Somebody's moving his jersey around. So the Sterlings they, they come into possession of the plantation in eighteen thirty four. And they own the property for about twenty years. And over this time, they really add on to the property. They expand the house itself, but then also uh, at some point they have around 550 slaves working at the plantation. And it's the largest plantation in the area. The years that the Sterlings are there, there's a lot of death. Only four of their nine kids make it to adulthood. Then they die of like varying diseases and fevers. One source said mostly died from TB, uh, but it's kind of hard to pinpoint any one thing. But TB, I mean, it was no joke. So my great aunt actually died of TB and my grandmother was sent to a sanitarium for a few years before coming back home. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this would have been like the late 20s, early 30s. 
and, and now of course with modern medicine and vaccines it's, it's extremely rare even if you do get it usually it can be cured but back then it was a death sentence so there's not much to talk about here except for how much death occurred over this period but if you go to the Myrtle's plantation today the architecture and styles mostly come from this time period so the sterlings left a pretty handed mark on the feel of the plantation yeah, man, you got to think about, like, 550 slaves, like, and all of these other uh, families that died in this house. I mean, how many bodies are just buried around that house? I mean, you, you know, it's it's a scary thought about the kind of ghosts that could be there. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of death that's happened at this plantation, and I think that's what really goes into a lot of these ghost stories is sometimes you can't really pinpoint one or two main ghosts. I mean, we have Chloe, we have some other things coming up here in a second, but like when an area or a house or just a place sees a lot of death, I think what happens is, I don't know if it's like a human nature thing where like, if a lot of people die in one place, there's something natural inside of us that says, Hey, be scared of this area because your life is at risk. You need to get out of here. I wonder if that's part of it. Like we have something built internally that says like, if a lot of humans die in one place, somehow we feel, we feel that. And it's like this fight or flight, like we got to go um, that, or like maybe these spirits are getting stuck and hung up here. And when you have so many people dying in one place, one or two get stuck. I, I mean, who knows? Yeah, man. I mean, that makes sense that like the, I mean, there is, you know, obviously we believe in God, but there's, you know, an evolutionary process in our brains that we develop that, you know, helps us learn to adapt and overcome. So it makes sense that if we see an area that has been around a lot of death, that we automatically have an instinct to stay away from that area. You know, whether or not we, you know, you know, some of us will say, oh, well, we feel like there's evil there. It could be that it's not that we feel that there's evil there as much as it could be that there's an innate process in our brain that says there's so much death here. There's probably a reason that people are dying here. So we need to be staying away from it. Yeah. And that that's very easily why we could feel there's that natural feeling of if you're in a dark room and you turn your back to a dark corner, you feel like there might be something back there. That's like a natural instinct to, it's like that's built into our our brain basically saying like get out of here you're at risk and maybe places with a lot of death that's part of it i like i said we just had a shower curtain that fell in our bathroom <laughs> so you know i don't know how many people have died in my house but hopefully not i mean my house is built in 1990 so i should shouldn't be that many people right <laughs> probably nobody uh, if it, your house is only 34 years old but you never know. And again, we're going to have a personal episode story because I have a really good one from when I was a kid that has to get into that has to get on air at some point about a house that we lived in that had a, a person dying. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, your stories are freaking creepy as crap. They're not great. No, they're not. They're creepy. But Paul will be telling all the ghost stories and I'll be telling the stories about angels and good things that, <laughs> you know, kids want to hear, you know, things that make us feel good. So Ruffin Sterling, who who was the man of the house, and his official death record says 
he dies of consumption, which is just what they called TB back then. And so but the disease basically just appeared to consume people. Um, and they basically just withered away when you had tuberculosis. So TB. One of the surviving children, Sarah, marries a man by the name of William Winter, which is just a couple years before Ruffin Sterling dies. And so now the Winters run the Myrtle's Plantation. I, I know it kind of feels like we're just flying through the history here, but we kind of are because there's really only so much we can talk about. Um, so I don't plan to get into like the intricacies of the architectures and the design of the plantation. Uh, much of this took place over those those 20 years. So this next period is kind of interesting if you take history into context. So this plantation had been running for like 60 years, mostly on the back of slaves. And so what do we know about the 1860s, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the signing of the 13th Amendment, which was ratified on December 6th, 1865, freeing the last remaining slaves in the Union State, Delaware, and Northern Control State of Kentucky. So just as a side note, the Emancipation Proclamation it didn't affect those northern states that had slaves. So this massive plantation with something like 550 slaves, all of a sudden, it loses its entire workforce. With rough and dead, Mary Sterling needs help. So she also has her hands in like three other plantations. And this is when her son-in-law, William Winter, kind of comes into the picture. And the plantation responsibilities and ownership uh, move down to him and Sarah. So William has talked about like really positively everywhere I read. And he and Sarah have this big, beautiful wedding at the plantation, but they move away first to the Gantmore plantation, then to the Arbroath plantation, but they're still really close to Myrtle. They have four kids, one of which, Kate, dies at Myrtle from typhoid fever at the age of three. So this is a, another situation where we kind of get into a legend here. But the speculation is that she was separated from the other kids and brought to Myrtle to kind of keep the virus from spreading to them. So essentially, she's quarantined at the Myrtle plantation. So this is kind of weird. So the this couple, they own this huge plantation, and they're not even they're not even trying to stay on it. They're going to all these other plantations. Well, they don't own it yet because it's still owned by Sarah's mom. But they, they still, it still almost kind of looks like they're intentionally staying away from the Myrtle plantation. Yeah, to some, to some extent, yeah. But they owned, I think they owned other plantations. So they lived not super far away. These plantations weren't like hours away. They were like 20, 30 minutes by horse. They were not too far away, I don't think. So they're at these other plantations. So their, their daughter, Kate, gets sick and um, she's quarantined at Myrtle. So it's at this time that they pursue a voodoo priestess to perform rituals on Kate and kind of like a last-ditch effort to save her life. So the story goes, the voodoo priestess is brought to Kate's room where she takes little, like, gris-gris bag, which is basically just a voodoo charm. She stands over Kate, and she chants unintelligibly while shaking this gris-gris over Kate. So it's recorded that this white powder was kind of like sprinkling down onto her and her bed, and this voodoo priestess is getting louder and chanting louder and louder. And finally, she just collapses on the floor. So when she comes to, she tells the family, Kate is healed and she disappears into the woods behind the house and she's gone. <laughs> so sadly, the next morning, Kate dies. Oh, my gosh. This is crazy. Yeah. So the voodoo priestess is there doing this ritual, saying all this crazy stuff. They invited like this dark magic in and she's dead. 
And so this is where you'd think that most people would learn their lesson and say, okay, let's not get a voodoo priestess. Like voodoo priestess, let's try to stay away from them. It's Louisiana. And so there's a there's a lot of rich history of like dark magic and voodoo in the area. And that's just kind of like is what it is. But there is a little bit of a lesson to be learned here because this all happened in 1861. So the Civil War, you know, was raging and this place plantation did have slaves. And there's actually a couple like legends to the story. One basically says that the slaves, since they, they wanted to avoid being like taking getting revenge from like the winters, they go and they find this priestess and they they hang her and they kill her at the Myrtle Plantation. That's probably not what happened, but there's a legend that basically says since Kate died, the slaves are like, hey, we brought this voodoo priestess here. The winters are going to be pretty mad at us. Let's take care of it. So they end up killing the, pri- the, the priestess. But there, more likely, she probably made her way to New Orleans where that was kind of like super common practice, all that voodoo, and she just slipped away. It never was seen again. I mean, this is, I mean, I hate to say it, but this is what happens when you go to a city and you find a voodoo priestess and you say, hey, come over to my house. I'll pay you lots of money. It's either you're going to summon something evil into the house or, you know, she dies anyway. I mean, it's it's just terrible. (laughs) It's like what what logic goes into that? I think a lot of people as like a last ditch effort pursue like spirituality, whether that's whether that's like a dark spirituality or like what we what we practice like christianity i i i don't know i think what happens is when you're at the when you're at a point i can't imagine if my daughter was on her deathbed i i don't know i feel like at that point you're kind of like the doctors can't do anything i'm gonna pursue every single avenue i have to save her life whether i believe it or not and i think that's kind of what happened here is that it was like hey we got this lady. She can do dark magic. Uh, we'll bring her in and potentially save our three-year-old from dying from this disease, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I can understand. Like, you know, love for your family makes you go far. But I definitely would say, well, my family, I love them to death, but I'd rather have them. I know where they're going when they die, you know? Yeah, I get that. Versus accidentally summoning the magic in my house (laughs) (laughs) some something really dark yeah that's that's kind of sketch so as discussed earlier at the end of the civil war so slavery was abolished and the hands that worked the fields they all dried up so the winters they moved back to the myrtle plantation on may 30th 1865 to help run the plantation so without slaves to run the plantation William Winters declares bankruptcy and the fields are all sold off in 1867. And that's just a couple of years after the civil war. So basically they keep the house and I'm not really sure um, what else they had, but I didn't really read anywhere else, but I definitely know they had the house because on January 26th, 1871, William he's murdered uh, at the plantation. He's murdered at the helm, which leads us to our next legend. So William Winters, he's in the house. He's teaching uh, like Sunday school lessons to his children and when outside, they hear an approaching horse. So the hooves kind of pound up the driveway, and a man is heard yelling, gentlemen, to see the lawyer. So he yells this again and again, and William, upon hearing this, he, he leaves his kids. He goes outside, and while he's talking to them, the man says, 
are you William Winters? And William says, yes, that's me. And once that's confirmed, the man pulls out a gun, point play, and shoots William right in the chest. And he just rides off. What? Why? I don't know. I didn't read it. They never found the guy. They don't know if he knew him. He just basically, there was an assumption that he was, just because all the reconstruction stuff, there was an, I, there's an assumption that he was upset with William for some reason. I don't, I don't know. It, they, I never really found anything that got beyond the fact that this guy just kind of wrote up Ask for the lawyer that lives at the house when he came out. He said, are you William? Yes. Boom. Shot him. And that was that. And he rode away and never was found. He's probably defending some like weird client or something. Yeah. Maybe, maybe William was a prosecutor in some random case and he's like, I'm going to get him. And we never figured it out. And that process, then that, <laughs> that client got off scot-free. Dang. Back in the day, man. Yeah. That's all you had to do. Pull out a shotgun. So William, he, he shot. And he turns around and he runs back to his front door. Once inside, he kind of clumsily bounds up the stairs. And falling at the top level to the floor, he succumbs to his gunshot wound. He's buried the following day at Grace Church next to his daughter, Kate. So there's varying stories as to how he died. The running up the stairs has been kind of disputed with bloodstains in the game room where he would have been teaching his kids Sunday school. Also, there's stories that he like fell into his wife's arms and, and died there. But he was shot with a shotgun. And the book, The History and Haunting at the Myrtle Plantation, it kind of goes into some detail on how long someone might live, depending on the, the load. And so he could have just been a few minutes, but it also could have been a full day for him to actually bleed out and die. All that said, that was the end of William Winter. Wow, that sucks. So that's the plantation owners over the years. Those, those are the main families. There's the hand exchange hands for a little bit there. And it becomes like kind of goes in disrepair. And now it's like a museum. But those are the main families that that lived the home and where a lot of these legends come from. So we're going to talk now about like the ghosts and kind of like the, the actual Myrtle Plantation and the haunting. Uh, now that we've talked about the history. So first, there's the ornate mirror that hangs in the main foyer of the Myrtle Plantation. And so with so many deaths occurring at the plantation, many wakes were held there. So a long-standing superstition you may have heard of is the souls of the deceased, they can be trapped in mirrors. So the majority of the time when you had these deaths or wakes, they would cover all the mirrors because they didn't want souls of the deceased to get stuck, to get basically trapped in the mirrors. But it's said that this specific mirror basically had been overlooked on more than one occasion. And so now visitors to the Myrtle Plantation, they claim to see handprints on the glass. And there's even pictures online revealing these prints. Dude, I actually, you looking at this, this is creepy. I mean, oh my gosh, man. Like, it's just like in the corners, like the upper corners of the, of the mirror, but where the handprints are. I mean, it's, it is creepy. It is freaky. And the other thing to note is that like the glass has been replaced and the mirror has been resilvered, but like every time, these handprints still still appear. No matter how many times it's been reglassed and resilvered, it's it's like someone's stat, like just someone's trapped on the other side. Guess where I'm not visiting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not going. <laughs> so most of the ghost stories surrounding the plantation are tied to specific objects. So the mirror, for example, this includes the furniture as well. It's said that in the house, things often move unexpectedly. So oftentimes there's this like 300 pound chandelier in the foyer. It can be seen swaying up above. 
So the foyer, there also sits a baby grand piano. And it's right outside the Bradford room, which, if you please, you can you can stay there overnight if you want. Uh, many guests report hearing the piano playing usually around like 2 or 3 in the morning. Nothing violent, but usually it's like a melancholy tone, uh, which I think I'd rather have than someone like running up the stairs, which is often said to be heard by guests sleeping there as well. Yeah, let's let's go stay in a hotel. It's definitely haunted, especially why would you go with the 300 pound chandelier? Like, I'm not walking under that thing. (laughs) Yeah, we'll stay in a hotel nearby. We'll visit for a little bit. We won't even look at the mirror. And then we'll, we'll bounce. The chandelier, though, why would you go in there? Like, there's a 300-pound <laughs> chandelier up there, and it's swaying. Like, that's obviously not sturdy, for one thing. For two, I mean, ghost or no ghost, that thing's swaying, that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's not That's not great. So, the foyer alone, it's it's seen so much action. that You almost want to stop and spend a lot of time talking here about this stuff, but there's much more to this house than just, like, the entryway. Like I said, I wouldn't want to go into this thing. I mean, you have the... If you can make it past the 300-pound chandelier that's swaying over your head um, and then just go past the grand piano that's playing by itself, <laughs> yeah. you know, make it to the mirror where you see the the fingerprints, the handprints that are just randomly coming out of nowhere. Yeah, it's it's not good. It's <laughs> just a lot going on here. But th- So there's a lot of ghosts that claim to haunt the Myrtle Plantation. Of course, there's Chloe's ghost, the slave who made the poison birthday cake. Uh, there's Mr. Mr. Winters, who was shot by the man he did not know. There's the dark magic of the voodoo priestess. Of course, there's the dead children. But all in all, there are some ghosts that just aren't accounted for. So there's a story I read of a Myrtle employee who greeted, a, he, he was there to greet guests at the front gate. So he claimed that like he saw this woman dressed in 19th century white clothing just walk past him. It did, she didn't say anything to him. She gets to the front door and she just walks through it. And when I say she walks through the front door, door was closed. <laughs> she just wisps right through it. And he quit that day. He was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. There's a lot of stories like that where these like random people dressed in like 19th century clothing that can't really be attributed to any stories that we have that have been seen or heard or felt on site here at the Myrtle Plantation. You see in the scary movies, that guy that quit day he saw it is the guy that survives yeah he's the guy that lives (laughs) paul you're the guy that's like oh i'm gonna stay around a little longer the job pays pretty well i want to see if i see anything else you're the guy that's gonna die i would be like huh interesting (laughs) so there's also the story of francis myers a woman staying at the myrtle plantation in 1983 she claimed to be awakened by a black woman in a green turban standing over her with a lit candle she was so scared by this she pulled the covers over her head and she screamed when she looked out, the woman was gone. And basically what I read about this was that she said the woman looked so real and the candle was so real that it cast like a flicker in the room. Like it was as if someone was really standing there. It wasn't like out of the corner of her eye. She legitimately saw a woman with a turban with a candle standing over her bed um, dressed like she was from the 1800s. See, you know what's funny is like you say this story, like she pulls the covers back to look again. Nah, bro, I ain't pulling the covers back. It's done. It's done. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> when I see that sun peer through, that's when I might come out. I might come out. Otherwise, that blanket's going over my head and I'm running out the door. <laughs> so, Chloe, she, I mean, she's the most prominent ghost from this plantation. And I do want to get back to the photo that was taken of her. So, when it comes to ghosts, there's only so much you can really talk about. 
as most encounters are kind of like individual experiences. But in this specific case, we have a photo of a woman dressed in 19th century clothing, standing up against the side of the house. I mean, go online, take a look at it. It's there. It's creepy. I'm like really skeptical about a lot of this stuff. But when you have a photo, like how can you dispute that? When you have something that's like right there in front of you, how can you say she's not there? Uh, it's that is crazy. I mean, the photo definitely. I mean, I, I like the fact that it's like old too. It's not like a newer photo, you know. Like this was taken. What 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 year was the photo taken? I actually don't know. Old enough that it was black and white. I think it was like early nineteen hundreds. I want to say like for some reason the like nineteen twenties are popping into my head, but I don't know exactly when that photo was taken. See, that's just that's creepy, man. Yeah. That's not the only ghost caught on camera. So another ghost caught on camera I want to talk about. It comes from ABC's News affiliate, a reporter that was putting together a segment on the Myrtle Plantation. So they were in the French room recording their segment when a white apparition flies through the room. And so you can see it on video. And I'll add that source here in the show notes. But there's a frame when paused. Looks like a profile of a woman in the French room. Yeah, I will not be looking that up. So apparently this French uh, room has a ghost that's seen there really often. She's known as the lady in black. And to me, it kind of sounds like the voodoo priestess, especially if they caught up to her and hung her on the grounds. Maybe that's her ghost in the French room. Oh, that makes sense. I wonder if that's, no, the, the wait or the, um, wherever she did the thing with the kid must've been up in the bedroom. If not, probably in that French room. Well, the French room is a bedroom. Yeah. It's just called the French room. So I wonder if they did this in the French room and the priestess is just like coming back to where she killed the little girl at. Yeah, I don't know. It's said that this room, I'm pretty sure this room is not one that you can stay in, but it's basically said that this room, the they see a lot of activity here and whatever ghost is there, if there is a ghost there, it's not shy. It does a lot of stuff in there. So like it's a room that's pretty much locked most of the time. Before we start wrapping up, I, I want to talk about one last room. And so that room is the parlor room. Or I guess it, it's a double parlor. It has a door that kind of splits it. It's like a men's side and a women's side. But it's said that, that during tours of this area, little children can be heard. And sometimes little hands pulling on your clothes can be felt. So the Myrtle Plantation had many kids living and dying there. So I imagine that this area, maybe the kids are playing. But if you walk through doing a tour of this area, you can sometimes feel little hands pulling your clothes. Yeah, that's what I love to be feeling. <laughs> yeah, little kids <laughs> trying to trying to play with you, and you turn around, and they died in like the 1800s. That's the last thing you need. So one particular tour guide named Mark Leonard, I mean, he claims that when walking guests through this room, he was telling the story of Mr. Winner's murder. And when he mentioned the horse, all 24 guests touring the room said they heard a horse neighing outside. He didn't hear it. And he actually heard that they, they told him this later. So basically a lady came up to him and was like, Hey, that was really creepy when you were talking about the horse that a horse neighed outside. And he's like, I didn't, I didn't hear that. And he asked the room, did you guys hear a horse? And all 24 of them like nodded. Yes, we heard that, <laughs> which is like <laughs> super freaky. So this guy actually has like story after story after story. So he talks about like the candelabras in the parlors that sometimes move. On one occasion, they stood there and just watched it like sway back and forth for like 30 minutes. And then suddenly it just came to like a dead abrupt stop, which is also really freaky. 
bro. I got goosebumps. I'm waiting for my shower curtain to fall down. <laughs> yeah, it's going to fall again. He, he has his own personal story. He talks about that. The French room, again, that's locked, that guests aren't really like allowed to go into. Uh, basically, he said he goes in there pretty often to straighten the furniture. And it's often been shifted behind locked doors. So it's constantly moving on its own. So in relation to like the stuff moving, there's like so many stories from like the Bradford suite. So guests have had their luggage dumped. Chloe's ghost with the green turban kind of floating across the room. There's stories of doors slamming and a presence felt when lying in the bed. People claiming to hear people opening and closing doors and walking around outside uh, only to find out that they were the only ones staying in that side of the house. And we're not, again, I know we've talked about a lot of the rooms here. There's just so many ghosts that surround each room and visitors recalling stories of ghosts they've seen or heard. But I did want to talk about the game room and the dining room also, uh, both of which come up in the story of Winters being shot, that he may have died in either room. So the game room being where he was teaching his kids during the Sunday school when that guy on the horse rode up and and shot him. So anyway, a, a scene from the movie A Long Hot Summer it was shot there at the Myrtle Plantation. And if you do any research on the Myrtle Plantation, this story comes up again and again and again. But the story goes that the crew, they move all the furniture from the game room and the dining room to shoot this one scene. So they go on break, they come back, and the furniture is all back into its original location. So no one had been in the house. And this happened like day after day. It happened multiple times. Like it wasn't just a fluke like maybe one day they thought they moved the furniture, but they didn't. It was like over the course of several days, they would move the furniture and the ghosts would move it back. <laughs> and so all that said, it's pretty well documented story from the production of A Long Hot Summer. Go and read about it. I mean, it's one of the stories that come up again and again and again. Dude, so if you were an actor and you were like playing in this movie, like, would you seriously keep going back? I mean, I'd be out. I'd be like, obviously, there's something here that doesn't need to be here. Yeah, from from what I read or what I remember, they were pretty like ready to be done with with the shooting. A lot of the the information that I that I saw basically said like after all this happened, they're like, all right, let's get out of here. They were ready to be on the shooting there because it was like one thing after another. And when you have furniture moving a lot and you have different things like that happening, you got to imagine there is a little bit of heightened kind of okay awareness of the area. You get a little bit creeped out. You're trying to focus on doing work, trying to do your job. They, I think, were ready to be out of there um, with all with all the ghost stuff, all the activity. Yeah, would it would it be also kind of get annoying too at the same time? Like you're sitting there, like you move all the furniture, like everyone's moving all the furniture, <laughs> and then you're like, you come back and you're like, all right, let's go film our next scene, and you're like, what the heck? <laughs> like we just moved all this stuff. Imagine being that crew, like the guy's back kind of hurts. <laughs> He's like, man, we just moved so much old furniture. And I just, I went to lunch, I had my sandwich and you come back and all the furniture is back in its place. I, yeah, I'd be pissed. And you got to believe like the ghosts are like, Haha, this guy. And they're like moving furniture over and over and over. Whenever we, so whenever we die, I mean, obviously we, you know, we believe we're going to go to heaven um, after we pass. But if it was, if it was a situation where we end up being ghosts, that's what we, that's what we need to do. Like you and me move furniture. You and me just need to go to like these production sets or somebody's job and just keep messing with them just constantly. I don't like moving furniture as a living person. I will not be dead spending my afterlife moving f- furniture. I'm not this. I'm done. I'm not doing that. 
I'm gonna. Oh, I'll do that. I'll do it just to mess with people. I I can't. You can't get me to move stuff today while I'm alive. I'm a young person. I'm not gonna be as a ghost moving furniture. That sounds miserable. What a miserable afterlife. <laughs> I guess this is true. I guess it would be a. But it would be so funny though. We'd have so much fun with it. Yeah, it it is funny. You gotta imagine some of these ghosts have a sense of humor. So they have to. I mean, I would pay them to, I, you know, I wonder if we can like somehow convince them like, like we go there and we're just like, hey, you know, if there's any ghosts here, if you'll tell us who your um, great grandkids are, we'll give them a little bit of money. If you guys want to just come over and just move this grand piano up our stairs, preferably without breaking it, you know, we'll pay your grandkids. Two ghosts in a truck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that, that was a lot. And so these ghosts are, you know, these ghost episodes, are, they're kind of tough because um, usually like the episode, it's just like story after story of individual encounters. And they're kind of hard to go through without being this happened, this happened, this happened. I, I feel like when we do Unsolved Mysteries, UFO encounters, we kind of have more of like a linear story, whereas these hauntings are kind of like personal experiences. Again, I, I feel like we had a lot of fun with this episode. I really enjoyed this episode. I think it was it was fun to kind of like banter through all this stuff so hopefully this was a lighter episode for our listeners as well as it felt like for us and i you know i'm really interested in the paranormal and i want to keep doing these and if there's an easier way to structure these we'll we'll keep working in that direction but i did enjoy this this recording session i feel like we were able to really talk through some history and then also some ghosts but with all that said jason what do you feel what do you think about this place i mean uh Obviously, there's a lot of people that died here, so I don't. I wouldn't say that my number one plan is to go. I mean, I, I love like the old antique and like the the aspect that this house has gone through so many families, like just how old the house itself is, um, and what it's been through. Like, I love that kind of stuff. But the fact that there's so much death around it, and I mean that it's haunted i just i don't know man i don't know if i'd want to visit this place to be honest i it kind of kind of creeps me out a little bit yeah there is a lot a lot here and um I, as much as i enjoy talking and, and like having fun around stuff like this there is a, a is a level of like i don't really want to deal with it i mean i don't want i enjoy like hey it's fun but whenever i do the episode and now that i'm going to edit all this I want to do most of my editing during the day, so I don't have to. So I'm not scared. Um, sitting by myself, listening to like us talk about ghosts. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's definitely haunted. There's just way too many stories. There's photo evidence of some really creepy stuff, and kind of short of going there, watching episodes and reading about the Myrtle Plantation, I get the impression that a lot of death has happened here. And to me, anytime someone screws around with like dark magic or voodoo. I don't think anything really good comes of that. I, I don't even like talking about it. And, you know, as my mom would say, Paul, you don't dare invite that stuff into our house. Like, that's her thing. Even when we talk about just ghosts, it was don't invite that stuff into our house. So in me, like in my brain, it's this anytime there's like voodoo or like, I mean, this whole thing about this voodoo priestess. That's not good. That's that's got to be inviting stuff in the fact that they had that in the house. Um I think this place is definitely haunted. Yeah, I definitely think that the the um, voodoo priestess. I think from there on, it seemed like there was more 
like more spirits got trapped there. I mean, if that was one way to trap spirits, I don't know what is, you know, you, you invite something evil into the house and now, you know, it tracks everything else. Yeah. That's, that's, what's interesting too. I think whenever, whenever there's something really dark or really nefarious, um, it seems like that stuff sticks. And it's really interesting that like objects seem to be haunted. If you ever like really do research or like read about hauntings, it's usually like something specific, some specific object that has trapped something, something stuck to it, something's tied to it. And so like having a voodoo priestess come in, do this ritual. And then this three-year-old girl, she dies like right afterwards. I don't know. I don't like it. I think that this place definitely has some some souls stuck here. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to see the history of it for sure, but it definitely, I I, I definitely agree. It, it sounds like there's something, something evil possibly in that house. And I mean, the fact that, you know, it, and it's, and the fact that there's like a 300 pound chandelier, just, <laughs> I mean, I know that's kind of crazy. That's what bothers me the most, but the fact that a 300 pound chandelier is kind of swaying back and forth without um, anybody touching it. I mean, that's just, that's kind of a scary thought yeah. in itself, you know? I, I don't know, man. Yeah, it definitely adds that, that I think that was important to say that how heavy that chandelier was. And the book made it a point to say like, Hey, this chandelier is pretty heavy because I think, you would say, oh, well, the house, you know, houses shift, houses move, they settle. But 300 pounds, that's a lot to just be swaying. Yeah. I mean, the piano, you, you know, we hear pianos getting played all the time. Like, you know, oh, this ghost is haunting the piano. But, like, I think, I definitely think the mirror and the chandelier um, and, and that photo, I mean, those are all, in my opinion, those are all things that, I, yeah. And, and I mean, the fact that it's in um, Louisiana, where a lot of the voodoo is happening, um, I think that says something about it, too. Yeah, there's a lot of rich history in Louisiana of like voodoo and, and that stuff and like the darker, darker magic and stuff. One thing I will say is we we really just scratched the surface. We probably could have done a lot more here with there's there's so many stories. There's so many personal stories of things that have happened to people. I wanted to give kind of a taste of it I, I i feel like we talked about all the important stuff um if you i mean if you really enjoyed this episode i'd say i mean go out get the book read it it's it's really good i'll have it in the show notes um there's a lot of information and just maybe go walk through it and if you have an experience you know go to our website <laughs> shoot us some messages tell us tell us about it maybe we'll uh maybe we'll entertain any kind of scary stuff you guys deal with but again all that said as as our, our our podcast grows as things continue please like our episodes please share our episodes if you really enjoy them keep listening subscribe i don't i really don't know what happened but our last episode really exploded um it had 10 times the downloads of the pre the episode before that so uh, I think we're going to continue hopefully to grow and, and get more listeners. So please continue to listen, subscribe to us, like our stuff, go to our website. Our website has, you know, access to us. If you give us a little message that goes straight to our email box and we'd love to hear from you. But, you know, with all that said, Jason, do you have anything else for us before we wrap up? Uh, no, this is a, this is a good episode. This is a little bit darker than um, our last ghost episode. 
I'll say that much. It was a, a little bit scarier. I definitely had um, some hair standing on end. And the fact that my shower curtain decided to fall, you know, while we're talking about all this, I mean, it definitely, uh, it definitely was a little bit scarier than our last ghost episode. Yeah, the Moonville, the Moonville tunnel episode had like more accidents and just kind of like stories of people dying. This was like there were actual like nefarious things. People were murdered here, and um, it definitely makes it like darker. And we had a voodoo priestess and all that. So this is probably going to be as about as dark as it gets. I, I don't foresee us getting darker than what this episode was, just because. Jason and I don't like to dabble, so this is this is probably going to be as dark as it gets. <laughs> but all that said, thanks everyone for listening to the Anecdotalist. Uh, please tune in next time. Our next episode is going to be a UFO encounter, and so after this, buckle in. Let's get back to aliens. Thanks everybody. <laughs>